This is the Gospel of Jesus Christ in four parts. One, we have a holy creator God who is perfect, just, and loving. Two, we are fallen, broken, sinful, self-serving, deceitful, and have wicked hearts. Because of that, we are doomed to be separated from God. Three, despite our unworthiness, God pursues us until our last breath, becoming a man, walking with us on earth, living a perfect life in service to us, dying for our sins, and resurrecting himself to show us that he has conquered sin, death, and hell itself simply because of his love for us. And four, when we turn from our sin and selfishness, accept God's grace, and give our lives to Christ, we are forgiven by God, not only for our individual sins, but for our sinful nature. And this results in a life of obedience and repentance, being joined to God for eternity, and his promise to live with us and make himself known to us. Why are my first words on this podcast the gospel? Because this corrupt world is in desperate need of a plumb line, a standard of truth, love, and actions. And this is the true plumb line by which I will be measuring everything we discuss from here on out. This is the God-declared truth and the place where standards begin. Christianity is the dominant world religious belief, with a reported 2.38 billion professing adherents out of more than 7 billion people. If you are one of my regular readers and or listeners, you know that I am a professing Christian. If so many, including me, profess Christ and believe the gospel, then why are we so surprised at corruption? Why is this shocking to us if it's part of our core beliefs? When it boils down to examining political, medical, media, church, individual, or any kind of corruption, why are so many Christians constantly skeptical of it? Why do we want to believe that corruption just doesn't exist? The second point of the gospel is that we are all corrupt, fallen, broken, sinful, selfish, and following our own interests. In fact, when we discuss the flaws of people, both Christians and non-Christians, we describe them as a product of human nature or part of the human condition. We recognize instinctively that no one is perfect. Those who believe the gospel should never be surprised at corruption, as it is the base nature of all humans. They should never be skeptical of claims that government agencies try to circumvent accountability mechanisms in order to take unfair or illegal advantage of their position to serve their own interests. The response to the accusation that a wealthy, powerful, or famous individual is abusing their position should be, might be, what's your evidence? God flat out tells us this in Ecclesiastes 5.8. He says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. God himself describes the structures of systematic corruption. And he tells us that we are not to be surprised. We are to expect it. Which should not be the response of any believer to a corruption claim is, you're a conspiracy theorist. The response is not only intellectually lazy, intentionally malicious and unloving, but it's also a denial of the basic tenet of the gospel that man is fallen. It's to call God a liar when he says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It makes the absurd claim that some humans are incorruptible. None of us are. There is no distinction between sinners and non-sinners. We are all sinners. The only distinction in the population is they can be divided into two categories, sinners and repentant sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And some of those sinners happily keep on sinning. 
but some live a life of repentance. The Bible defines repentance as a condition of the heart that results in the following actions. And this is how it's described in the Old Testament in Numbers 5, 5 through 7. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any of the sins that the people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sins that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrongs, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him who he did the wrong. This is the way we taught this passage to our young children. When you realize you've done something wrong, either because your conscience tells you so, or because someone confronts you on wrongdoing, number one, stop doing it. Number two, admit to what you did wrong. And number three, clean up your mess and leave it 20% better than you did before you made the mess in the first place. And our young children, and even my young son with an autism diagnosis, can understand this, and it's a principle they have lived by since they were toddlers. If you stole, stop stealing, admit that you stole it, and pay it back with 20% interest. If you lied, stop lying, tell the truth, and make it 20% better for the victim than it was before you lied about them. If you were cruel, turn cruelty into love. Admit your viciousness and heal the target of your malice to the point where they are healthier than they were before you savaged them. I'm convinced that the 20% added fee in reparations both vindicates and heals the victim. Repentance brings both the sinner and the victim out of darkness, shifts the unfair burden to the rightful owner, the sinner, and begins to set things right in the world. There's no such thing as true justice on this side of heaven, but repentance is the first step in the path towards justice. It brings truth, it sets things right, and it can upright fallen individuals, communities, institutions, industries, and whole countries. Think about that thing that has really injured you. The huge scar you bear because an uncaring, unaccountable, capricious, or vindictive individual left you with a burden that was not yours to bear. What would it do for you if they showed up in your life again, admitted that they wronged you, both to you and to anybody else impacted by their sin, and then set about the task of cleaning up the mess they made in your life? What if they decided to make your life a little better than it was before their selfish act? I've thought about this with my son's vaccine injury. What if the doctors who did this to him showed up at my door and said, you were right, we harmed him and we can't live with the guilt. We have a plan to try to heal him and to give you back what has been stolen for your family for the last 18 years. It's a fantasy that always leaves me in tears. That is what God has called us to do when we harm someone. And this does not just begin to heal the injured. It also helps the sinner unburden himself of his sin and become accountable not to sin again in this way. A man who has committed acts of repentance and now holds himself accountable to repent of all wrongdoing knows that he will simply place a far heavier burden on himself in his recidivism than he would have if he simply resisted the temptation to sin in the first place. Repentance creates a cycle of self-accountability. So true repentance is always expensive. At a minimum, it hurts one's pride. At a maximum, it can sentence some to the death penalty, which is why so few do it. But repentance is the thing that is required by the gospel to come into relationship with God. It is the first mark of a Christian. It is the ongoing mark of a Christian. God grants repentance to his children as a gift. So if you see a professing Christian that lives a life of even partial disobedience, as all Christians ultimately do, but you never see acts of repentance arising from humility and love for others, do you see a believer in Christ? Or do you see someone who professes a faith they do not actually possess? 
God has said that we will know a Christian by their good works and by their love for their brother. The first commandment is to love God, and loving God produces a desire to obey God. The second commandment is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Human nature results in sinning against others on a semi-regular basis. Thus, those who are repeatedly saying while failing to admit to that sin and set things right show us that they do not love God, nor do they love others enough to do right by the injured when they cause them harm. So in our discussion of corruption, from our position at the foot of the cross, with the gospel being the plumb line of truth, we start with an acceptance of the idea that corruption is everywhere. Those who believe in Christ must face the fact that we are constantly in need of correcting ourselves as we live our daily lives. We have to face the fact that there are those who see no need to repent, even for serious crime, ever. Many of those individuals have become successful in politics and in industry. And while they have hearts that are evil, so do we. Our first response to them is often disbelief, outrage, haughtiness, and hatred. They have become oppressors that will do whatever they think they can get away with doing. Ire and disgust at them is a natural response, and it is almost always my response. But God has called me to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. God has told me not to celebrate when my enemies fall. So I'm committed to becoming someone who is obedient in these difficult commands. The question becomes, what does that look like in an age of the public-private partnership, which is simply a new term to describe government pharmaceutical fascism? When people, even children, are left to die from a disease that has an inexpensive and easily accessed prevention and treatment in order to sell pharmaceutical products that are unavoidably unsafe and may even have negative efficacy. How does one obey God in this command to love such an enemy? How do we respond to the horribleness that we are watching and not make things worse in our response? What I'm asking is a very old question. It was most succinctly put by Francis Schaeffer in his 1974 works, How Shall We Then Live? Schaeffer, in his book and documentary series made at the intersection of the civil rights era and the sexual revolution, runs through world history and points out that there is nothing new under the sun. He notes that in all the difficult times in world history, the question and challenge remain the same. He said, there is a flow to history and culture. The flow is rooted in what people think and what they think will determine how they act. There is violence and breakdown in society up to the point in which it is unsafe to walk through streets in many cities of the world. On the other hand, there's a danger of increasing authoritarianism to meet that threat of chaos in our own countries and internationally. Should we despair and give in? How shall we then live? So in this series, Ginger Taylor, in many words, we will take up Schaefer's question and his challenge. He noted that the drift from truth and morality ends in social collapse. While some of us have understood this fascist threat for the last decade or more, it has now become crystal clear to half the population as the increasing corruption, deception, and authoritarianism has come into plain view in the age of corona, pandemic, and the Great Reset. The answer to the question, how shall we then live, is the gospel. To understand that we have a creator God who is perfect and just and loving that we are fallen, small, and broken, that God pursues us to our last breath and longs to draw us into his shelter like chicks under his wing, that the chief end of man is not success in, insert worldly pursuit here, but to glorify God and enjoy him forever, and to respond to this by understanding and entering into a relationship with Christ, obeying him, and repenting as we go.
Thus, the journey in facing the oppressive evil in our world today is first to humble ourselves and to throw ourselves on God's mercy and realize that the only thing that stands between us and being Fauci is God's grace. This is Ginger Taylor, in many words, 